Welcome to a special episode of Ask Canadian Six. During this time of COVID-19, six have been on the front line of the pandemic. We have served as drivers, as delivery people, as factory workers, and especially as healthcare workers. This time has shown the heart and the commitment to serving of six who are Nurses, doctors, personal support workers, respiratory therapists, and even the folks that clean our hospitals. Recently, in Canadian news, there was a story about brothers who were brought to the choice of either continuing their work without their case or keeping their case and not being able to serve in their roles. The reactions to this were polarizing and brought to the forefront larger conversations around accommodations for six who are on the front lines and what it really means when systems put us in that position of having to choose. World Sick Organization organized one of their Ask Canadian Sick panels. and We had three panelists, three frontline healthcare workers who were able to join us and share their thoughts and their lived experiences of working front lines in this pandemic. Please listen in to what is the recording of this webinar, and you can hear their responses and their views on the issue, as well as some questions we had taken from our folks that tuned in that day. I know we still have folks joining us, but we'll go ahead and get started. Um, thank you all for joining in. This is how we do things now on the internet. Um, so I want to start by um, saying that I know we're all coming from different places, um, but I'm hosting today from the city of Toronto. And the city of Toronto is on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people and is now home to many diverse First Nation, Inuit, and Métis folks. Um, this is uh, the Ask Sick Canadian, Ask Canadian Sick series. Uh, came from a time where the World Sick Organization saw a lack of representation um, in things resulting from, in the media coverage from uh, Justin Trudeau's trip to India. Um, a lot of things that followed since then. Um, and we started the hashtag Ask Canadian Six, because nobody was asking us. And so that developed into a um, series. It developed into a podcast, which you can find and listen to wherever you listen to your podcasts. And it gave us the opportunity to do things like this. Um, and so we are now doing it webinar style. And we're very excited um, to have with us today quite a few people who are experts in areas um, that something has piqued a lot of our curiosity. Um, so the World Service Organization in the past has done a lot of uh, human rights work for six in a Canadian context. And a lot of things fall into the mandate of the organization. 
including uh, at this time alone, we're working on um, helping Sikhs in Afghanistan. We are looking at domestic issues with international students. And during this pandemic, it has fallen to the World Sikh Organization to continue to do the advocacy work they do in healthcare settings. So uh, WSO is known for accommodations around Kakaz. We've worked on accommodations for the Gurban. We've worked on accommodations specifically for the Gurban healthcare settings. And now um, has had the chance to put forward a lot of uh, amazing information, policy work, advocacy work, lobbying around the use of personal protective equipment for sticks. Um, so if you, at any time during this, if you are uh, thankful for the work that WSO does, please know that our efforts uh, cannot be sustained without you. So we encourage folks to go follow us on all social media and please make don donations through our website. Okay, so with that, I'm gonna introduce our panelists. Um, the World Circle Organization prides itself on um, having uh, gender balanced panels. Um, and we have a gender balanced board of directors. And so it's very interesting that we are joined by all men today and such an honor to host this panel. Um, and so we did want to start by acknowledging that there are folks of all genders who are sex who are doing work in healthcare settings. Um, and then to especially say thank you to the bearded folks who are doing the work that they do. And thank you for bringing yourselves and your beards, your beautiful gifts and your beards into this conversation. We have, um, and we also are gonna encourage folks just um, some etiquette because this is a webinar, um, participants do not have the option for joining in with video or audio, but you do, if you move your cursor, you'll see on your screen the option to use the Q&A function. You, also, you can see the chat, but we're asking you to direct all of your questions to the Q&A. We're gonna speak with the folks for a while and then we're gonna, uh, for the last 20, 30 minutes, we're gonna take your questions. Okay, so in no particular order, um, we have <clears throat> Dr. Kevinjeet Singh Angar, um, who is an emergency physician in London, Ontario at London Health Sciences Center and St. Joseph's Healthcare. He's an assistant professor for the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University. And he's an assistant program director for the CCF for a Center for Family Physicians and their Emergency Medicine Program. Dr. Jasdeep Singh Saluja works as an internal medicine specialist in Victoria, BC. His current focus is on empowering patients to make positive lifestyle changes in order to gain greater control over their health. And Ramneet Singh has worked as a registered nurse for the last nine years in Calgary, Alberta in various fields, including acute care, mental health and addiction, community and seniors health, he currently works as a case manager within the Integrated and Supportive Facility Living Program with AHS. Okay, thank you all for coming in. Um, so what I'm gonna get you all to do is um, just tell us what you do. Um, so I gave the like small bio version. Um, yeah, so like, who are you? What do you do? What's your day look like? And what has your um, role been during this pandemic? So what kind of setting are you in and what kind of work are you doing? And we'll start with um, Kevin Deesing. Oh, great, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm an emergency physician in London, Ontario. 
Uh, so I work in the emergency department in the, the front line. And so uh, there I see patients with and without COVID with um, many different presentations. So I'm just having a lot of experience dealing with that uh, firsthand of what I've been doing. All right, just Steve Singh. Awesome, thank you, Jaspreet. Um, as you know, I am an internal medicine doc. I used to work in Toronto and moved out to Victoria in 2016, uh, where I work in the division of internal medicine in the hospital and I also run a clinic in the community. Uh, in terms of the pandemic, our local hospital is one of the COVID-19 centers on Vancouver Island and internal medicine service is helping to take care of the care and management of patients who are sick enough to be admitted to hospital, but not sick enough for the ICU. Hmm. Perfect. And Ramit Singh. Uh, thanks for having me here uh, today. So I work as a case manager with uh, the ISFL program in Calgary here. Essentially, uh, we work out of different facilities uh, and help supervise and do care planning for senior residents that are living in the facilities. So currently, uh, my role has been primarily preparing uh, on the other side. So it sounds like both my colleagues here have been on the acute care side. And for me, I've been in the community preparing the facility for when COVID hits the facilities. Because what we're seeing here in Calgary is that eventually uh, most of the facilities get hit with COVID. And there's a lot of casualties and a lot of crisis. So it's been a lot of preparation. Thank you so much. Um, Kevin Jeeth, I'm going to ask you this next question. As we have folks tuning in who are going to be coming at this uh, webinar with experience in the field and not in the field. So on a very high level, what is COVID-19 and how does it spread and what is the role of personal protective equipment? So COVID-19 stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019. It's caused by a virus called SARS-CoV-2. Uh, um, the virus first appeared in uh, Wuhan, China in late 2019 and quickly spread around the world. Um, the virus mainly spreads from person to person. Uh, this usually happens when an infected person coughs, sneezes, or talks to another person nearby. It's possible to get sick if you touch a surface that has the virus on it as well, and then follow that by touching your mouth, your nose, or your eyes. This is similar to how the flu spreads, but unfortunately this virus that causes COVID-19 spreads much more easily and quickly. Uh, a person can also be infected and spread the virus to others even without having any symptoms. And this is why social distancing is of paramount importance as keeping people apart is one of the best ways, and one of the only ways we have to slow the virus. Um, regarding uh, PPE, um, so personal protective equipment or PPE is equipment that um, healthcare workers use to prevent the contraction of the COVID-19 virus. Um, when uh, healthcare workers are um, caring for a patient with COVID-19, generally uh, we're using what we call droplet contact precautions. That means what we're using is a face mask with a shield that covers our eyes and then gloves and a gown. However, when we're conducting an aerosol generating medical procedure, so that includes things such as chest compressions, placing a breathing tube down, dealing with uh, or managing a patient on a ventilator or receiving life support, we're required to provide, we're required to use airborne precautions. And airborne precautions is step up from droplet precautions. And what that includes is gloves, a gown, and either a fitted N95 respirator um, or a hooded powered air purified respirator called a PAPR. Okay, perfect. Uh, just leave things. So this next question for you. Uh, we hear terms a lot. Um, if you're listening to the news, we hear about N95s, we hear about different types of masks. Uh, what, what is an N95? I know Kevin G. Singh talked about uh, airborne procedures. 
Um, so when is, what is an N95? Is it required? Uh, do they fit everyone? And what are some of the alternatives? Okay, awesome. Uh, so an N95 respirator is a, basically a, a face mask that achieves a minimum filtration efficiency of 95% when properly worn. In order for it to work well, it needs to have a tight seal around your nose and your mouth. Um, so not everybody uh, can wear one with uh, knowing that they get fully, get, get fully protected. Uh, people need a fit test for this and the fit test is designed uh, to ensure that the size and the type of mask will actually provide the protection it's supposed to provide. Uh, you usually need it in hospitals during, as Gavin G mentioned, uh, during airborne precautions. And usually airborne precautions are taken when there's a high clinical suspicion uh, for a patient to have an illness, a virus or a bacterial illness uh, that can be spread by airborne spread, such as uh, SARS, chickenpox, measles, TB, those type of infections. Um, and alternatively, uh, people that don't uh, pass their fit test for N95s usually use a powered air purifying respirator, respirator sorry, uh, which is also called a PAPR. And the nice thing with PAPRs is that they can be clean and reused. They don't need to be fit tested. Uh, people do need instruction on how to safely use them, though. Yeah, I actually wondered that about PAPRs because, like, the N95, it looks like you can just take it off. And if anyone hasn't Googled, it's P-A-P-R. Uh, it kind of looks like you're an astronaut goes over your whole head. Uh, so it can it's clean differently and it, it can be cleaned between patients? Yes, it can be. Okay, um, and I'm just gonna keep it on you for a second. Uh, just keep seeing, would, uh, did, when did you have your fit test and like when did you realize that it doesn't work, the N95 doesn't work with your dhati? So actually it was in the first several weeks of medical school in the first year of medical school is when we all got fit tested because we were going to be, all the students were going to start doing rotations, not rotations, but uh, observerships in our hospital setting. Uh, and so at that time, I knew I was not going to be fit to uh, pass the fit test for the N95. They had tried a bunch of different models, different sizes, and they didn't work. Uh, so since then, I've just known to use a PAPR. And I've been in this in more than several situations in small community hospitals during my training and early career in Toronto when uh, we used to, when the need for an N95 arose, they just had a PAPR for me. Okay. Kevin G. Singh, is this, was this experience the same for you? Did you realize very early on in your medical career that the N95 doesn't work for you? Yeah, it was very similar. Uh, my experience was more when I started my um, clinical process in my third year of medical school when uh, we were all asked to be fitted for an N95 and then being told uh, when I arrived, because I had no idea what an N95 was, that it wouldn't work. Um, so very similar experience. Okay. Uh, Ramin Singh, do you find, um, so you're, uh, if I understand this correctly, you're in charge of a team in the community? Uh, yeah, essentially. So my role uh, uh, requires kind of supervision of care and care planning at a facility on behalf of kind of the government side. So it's a private facility and they run the employees and the actual frontline management of the staff okay. and we provide supervision and, and care planning and direction. Is it fair to say um, that being in that position in healthcare, that it's not news that people in the healthcare field will need N95 masks. It's something, it's a conversation that predates COVID-19. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think it's news at all. I mean, uh, but I don't think people were prepared for this level of crisis either. So for example, here in Alberta, they're actually planning to reuse N95 masks. So they've, they've implemented a recycling strategy where they're taking masks from ICU departments and other departments and just storing them and having them cleaned in, in, in the event that we need them in the future and where there's an actual shortage. So I think uh, to answer your question, I think, you know, people 
weren't maybe as prepared as they would like to have been for this crisis. Um, but definitely, uh, the N95s are definitely important. Uh, what, is, so what did that mean for you and your team when this came? What changed for you in terms of how you manage personal protective equipment for yourself and others? Yeah, so it's uh, so a good question. So uh, uh, unlike my colleagues, I actually, when I actually started nursing, I didn't have to get a respirator, actually. So what they did for me was instead of assigning me a patient that needed airborne isolation, I could just change my assignment around, given that there were so many nurses working. As an emergency physician or internal medicine physician, you, you don't get that luxury, I guess, as much. Sometimes you're the only one on service, so you have to see the client. Uh, so with me, I was able to get around that and have been able to do so throughout my career. Regarding the facility piece, so we've had to uh, procure a lot of equipment to get ready for the pandemic. So that means getting uh, PPE ready and oxygen supplies. And uh, we've even gone one step further and we've started looking at all the goals of care for all of our residents to make sure that if something happens to the clients, uh, we want to make sure that we can respond in a timely manner and in, in a way that is in line with their with their values and what they want. Okay, so in terms of accommodations, and I think we're gonna be using that word accommodations a lot, uh, one of the options, uh, none of the options are ideal. We would like for our bearded sick professionals to be able to continue practicing exactly the way they have. But I did hear you mention one of the um, ways that we can accommodate is to be redeployed or to be given another assignment. Um, I've also heard the statement that most physicians are not uh, and healthcare workers are not uh, doing procedures that require an N95 or equivalent. Um, in the community, in your experience, is that how often um, are you dealing with aerosol generating procedures where you might require something like an N95? So uh, at the facility that I'm currently overseeing, we don't have um, them that often, to be quite honest with you. Um, but we will. So what happens is when a facility gets hit with COVID, we have a certain protocol we have to follow, follow where we have to mass test essentially every single patient in the facility. So when you start doing that type of work, it does introduce a few other risks that you have to be mindful of. But for now, we've been very lucky uh, and our facility has been COVID free. Uh, but in that, in that event, um, I've been uh, conversing with my managers and preparing for that type of a scenario. If, there, if a need arises where I need to be N95 uh, fitted or be wearing an N95 mask, uh, I can uh, talk to my managers and be redeployed into a different setting. Um, and I don't have the luxury of wearing a, a paper at this point. Okay. Um, thank you for that. And Kevin G. Singh, um, so on that topic of, you know, planning and putting things out there in advance, who, in your experience of being in the healthcare field, develops policy and guidelines? And um, if, not, if this isn't news, we've known that um, things can be airborne. We know that there can be procedures that require um, N95 or equivalent. Where in the process of developing the healthcare system do those conversations happen? So in Canada, at least, uh, healthcare policies are all uh, implemented provincially. Uh, so generally that's going to be the Ministry of Health and they'll develop their policies and guidelines taking the advice of organizations such as the World Health Organization, WHO, the CDC, and the overall scientific community and the infectious disease physicians across the country. Um, and then these provincial policies are then enacting out, enacted out by the individual hospitals and institutions. Okay. And whose responsibility is it to supply your PPE? Because uh, in Canada, correct me if I'm wrong, um, physicians are, it depends on who you are in the hospital or healthcare setting, who you're employed by, but physicians specifically are contracted by hospitals? 
Yeah, so for the, for the average person, if you're an employee, um, your employer sh is required to provide the appropriate PPE to prevent any occupational or workplace related injury or exposure. For physicians, it's a bit different because the majority of them are independent contractors and thus will have privileges in a hospital and otherwise they'll work in, a, uh, in their own facilities or in a different facility outside of the hospital and local clinics. Um, so that becomes a challenge with physicians, but overall still in that situation, the hospital still um, will supply the appropriate PPE. Do you bring your own or do you? No, no, the hospital will. The hospital will. Okay. Um, and so there's, uh, and to just deep seeing as well, um, have, have there been situations where you've had to procure your own PPE? No, and up until now, I've always been provided one if I ever need it. Okay. Um, so, uh, Ramneet Singh, the, on this idea of like who creates policy, um, World Sick Organization has been put in a position where we've actually put forward policy guidelines in the absence of uh, four bearded sick healthcare workers. Um, and we've been working with a whole bunch of frontline workers. So we don't want to forget that we are also, um, World Sick Organization also does work with so many of the frontline people, our six with beards our drivers, our delivery people, um, and we're keeping an eye out for all of them. If you want to look at the policy documents that um, World Sick Organization has created, you can go to worldsickorg forward slash COVID-19. Um, but that is something that we have had to do in response to a lack of actual foresight and thinking about this on the ground. And you're on that side of it where you are um, responsible for other people and you are already thinking about um, what's going to happen if this hits the community and if it hits seniors and you have to do this work. Um, do you think that these policies should be coming from grassroots organizations? Yeah, so I thought about, um, I thought about a lot when this initially started. And I think what happens is when there's a crisis situation, it's natural for humans to look up to leadership and authority for guidance. In this scenario, I think, uh, I'm not sure if we've gotten that from the highest levels of authority in the sick month, but I think WSO being that authority in Canada, I think it was great that you guys provide that, provided that direction because it had to come from somewhere essentially. Uh, so I think it's great that you guys did provide the policies um, and some guidance initially, but I would love to see uh, down the road, I think collectively from, from other uh, organizers and organizations is a unified effort to actually create maybe something a bit more innovative and uh, cost-effective. I know the PAPRs are great, but they're not that cheap and they're a bit of a hassle to put on and take off from what I understand and clean. So I would love to see an innovation one day where maybe it's an attachment that goes onto the N95 or we redesign new N95s uh, that actually accommodate the beard. I would love to see that from the sick community because I don't think it's going to come from manufacturers or from the private industry. So yeah. I think it has to come from us. Yeah, that, as my mom would say, Lord Gardi Maya, like we're the ones that need it. So we are the ones that are going to get really creative. Um, and we, I've seen some really amazing things. So I've seen the, uh, I've, I'm sure some of you folks have seen the video with the Tati, uh, where that one Rizzi in England, he puts on his Tati and he can, uh, there are folks that have been putting uh, their like masks if you're on a bicycle that keep the lower half of your face from getting cold. So uh, bearded professionals were putting those on. Um, and so, yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting things there. Um, just these things, um, what can, uh, in the absence of uh, this top-down approach, uh, which again, I wanted to say, I'm surprised by, I don't, I'm not a healthcare worker. Um, I'm surprised at how, uh, because these things were there, 
because there have been procedures that require these things because there are fit tests at the starting uh, points of the starting years of your careers. I was really surprised to see such a systemic failure. Um, what do you think in the face of the systemic failure, um, what can uh, sick professional healthcare workers and other, I mean, I think we're gonna see a trend towards asking other frontline workers to wear N95s as well, especially if we hit a surplus of them. Um, what can folks do to be prepared? So I, I think to start off with, everyone needs to, you know, sick professionals, bearded professionals that are working in healthcare uh, need to get fit tested, right? As early as possible in their training, as early as possible in their career. And once you know whether or not you've uh, actually passed a fit test, because I do have some friends that have beards and have been able to pass fit tests in the States, for example, with an N95. So that those particular individuals can use the N95s. And if you can't use them, then you have to be working with the organizations that you're working with or working for in order to ensure that the appropriate PPE is available to you when you need it, right? Okay. Um, I don't know. I, I really don't know about this whole systemic failure part of things. Um, I see, you know, there's a, there's a particular situation that's brought us all together today. Uh, but in many cases, in many health authorities and you know, across Canada and many uh, places in the States where um, the appropriate PPE has been provided and there's a lot of awareness about it. And, uh, you know, sick professionals are able to continue doing their work without having to worry about getting infected or taking it home to their uh, families. Yeah, absolutely. And you brought it up. Um, and there's a reason that we're all here. Um, so we do know that um, there's a story that really um, struck people for a number of different reasons. But there were Canadian doctors who had beards who were put in a situation where they had they removed their beards. Um, and whether it was a personal choice or um, we don't know what accommodations were provided to them. And we, we only have what they have shared with us about why they did make that choice. Um, there was an outpouring of um, support for showing um, what was framed as a sacrifice. There have been, um, there have been op-eds written that say that it was a false, to say it's a choice is false, that the um, hospital should have provided, and it is possible to provide an accommodation that eliminates that dichotomy of the dichotomy that was put forward, the binary was either you do seva or you keep your case. Um, so there have been folks that have written that that's not a real binary, which I'm seeing in your cases. For you, it was not. You were you were not challenged to pick a side or pick a team. Um, and it um, and everyone and it, and there's been anger from the community. Uh, there's been a lot of polarizing reactions. Um, so I'm just uh, I guess I'll stick with uh, you, just Deep Singh and we'll go to everyone. But how did you react to the situation? And what were you, as, you're, as someone who's out there, who's doing this work, who may or may not have been put in this situation, what are you thinking? So I initially heard about the story because I was sent a link to the Muncha Impact video that was produced on the subject. And it essentially is about a two minute video uh, explaining you know, a, a personal choice that's been made and a fairly bold you know, statement, a bold prop, uh, position of that this was something that was led by religious values, seva versus you know keeping your case. Uh, for me, it was really difficult to uh, comprehend the entirety of what happened in a two-minute video. It's really hard to give enough information to support a position in using a two-minute uh, video uh, bite. So then I started looking at the the articles that were coming out about the story, and again, none of the articles really answered some key questions that I would have had to have answered. So filling in the blanks 
about what was the actual situation, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the articles did mention, you know, one of the individuals, you know, is a co-associate director of emergency medicine at McGill University Health Center. When this hospital came about, it was called the super hospital, right? And this is in a, you know, one of Canada's largest cities. It is not immune to airborne transmitted viruses and, and bacteria. In fact, in 2011, there, Quebec had a measles outbreak, and it was considered one of the largest measles outbreak of the decade in North America. Over 700 different individuals were affected, and a large portion of these in, uh, individuals were treated in Montreal. As a result of SARS, as a result of the, on, you know, the measles, um, measles outbreak, there were several uh, guidelines that were, were brought out even amongst uh, professionals in Quebec. For example, there was the Quebec Association of Emergency Physicians in 2009 published guidelines and it, the title of the paper is called Healthcare Worker Protection in the Emergency Department During Pandemic Influenza. So this isn't something that uh, it wasn't unimagined before. And they have an entire section. And if I just quote here, it says, where appropriate, where an appropriate N95 is not available, a good fit cannot be achieved. The use of proper is recommended. That's by Quebec Emergency Physicians Association, right? So for me, it's kind of hard to believe that this information wasn't available to the physicians at hand or the hospitals at hand. And if the, and the thing is, if the information wasn't available, the story, the real story behind this is why wasn't the information available? Why, why, where was that? Where was that gap in understanding and the availability of making proper accommodations? And I think you, may, you bring up a really important point. Um, in Canada, the duty to accommodate falls on the employer and um, there is a charter that governs everyone in Canada and then provincially. So on Ontario, on Ontario, we have the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Every province, including Quebec, has provincial standards that require the employer uh, be the one that accommodates. So this does, I, I agree with you, I would have a lot of questions as well and I would wanna know what the employer had done within their duty to accommodate. Um, for the folks that are listening, we did reach out to the McGill University Health Network and they um, gave a statement saying that the doctors um, were not able to practice with the equipment that they had at the time. So they made a choice to remove their hair. Um, I asked, I replied with more questions about who accommodated and what steps were put in. And they said, we have no further comments. So that's the, I have the same questions and I don't have answers. Uh, but Kevin G. Singh, what, what about you? When you heard about this story, what did you think? Um, so I think the, um, the physicians in question, I think they faced a really incredibly difficult decision where they were forced to choose between aspects of their faith and their duty and oath to provide safety to their patients and the community. It was a time sensitive decision as they were at the epicenter of Canada's COVID-19 pandemic. With the, with the expectation that things could escalate in Montreal to similar levels that we saw in New York City and in Italy. Unfortunately, their hospital didn't provide a hooded papper and there was no signs that these pappers were gonna be made available anytime soon as Quebec has significant issues with uh, shipping due to bureaucracy and difficulty even obtaining approval from their own occupational health and safety. I'm, I'm just very empathetic to their situation and as six, I feel it's our duty to support them through this. Although we all share the same faith, many of us practice Sikhism in our own way. I don't believe anyone uh, should make judgments on someone's religious decisions and freedoms, and I hope that we can take this opportunity as a community to support them. Uh, going forward, my hope and goal is that we can learn from this situation, help prevent anyone else from having to make this difficult decision in the future. Agreed. Thank you for that. And I think it's also really important to highlight that 
Um, there has been, uh, while folks have been critical of the hospital and what they've done, that there, it is important to remember that there is uh, the spectrum of people who are on this journey in Sikhi. There's room for everyone um, on this journey and that there hasn't, I've, I've been grateful to see that there hasn't been uh, like personal attacks towards the two doctors and their decisions. This is not what this panel is about or what these conversations are about. We can't know fully why they did what they did, but we can talk about how it impacts the community and to know that we can definitely get ourselves in gear and put things in place so that moving forward, people know that they don't have to be put in that position. Um, Ramit Singh, same question. What did you think when you first heard the story? Uh, I would have to agree uh, quite a bit with Dr. Saluja and Dr. Munger here. Uh, so I think initially um, my reaction was confusion a little bit because when you work in the on the clinical side, you know what there is and what there isn't mm -hmm. in terms of availability of PP and things like that. And so there was a little bit of confusion. So then what happened initially was I kind of, uh, I think a lot of people got, get a bit emotional when they hear this type of a story. And there's a sense of uh, a feeling of betrayal that I've been seeing online and reading about online. Uh, so that I, I reflected more on the situation and I think I came to the point where I realized that this isn't about uh, making value judgments, right? So that's not what the situation is about and it shouldn't be painted as such about making value judgments against what the brothers did, like you said. For me, I think the reason the community has had such polarizing reactions, the, the way that I understood it better was I compared the situation to a large organization. So if you look at a large organization and you have employees in that organization that on their off time do whatever they want to do, if at any point those activities that those employees do ref reflect badly on the larger organization, typically there tends to be some sort of repercussions or consequences that, that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's sort of what's been happening here is that as practicing six that are members of the Sikh community, you end up being part of the larger organization. And every single action you take, especially in the public eye, reflects back on the community. So I think the reason that there's been so much, so many issues here is that people uh, in part have been confused uh, in the community by, by the actions, especially the mainstream uh, media. They've sort of taken this in a, in a certain direction. And there's been a bit of confusion there. And then I think there's been also a bit of a bit of undermining that's that's been done. I don't think it was uh, intentional. I don't think the Saluja brothers had any intention of any of the backlash that's happened or any of the negative consequences that might have happened. I think they had absolute pure intentions for possibly what they did. But I think um, unintentionally, there's been just some, some issues that have popped up. And just like an employee of a large organization, there might be some issues there that pop up. In that same way, with them being a part of the Sikh community, there's been some issues that have popped up. So I think it's really important that we, we, we focus on the issues at hand and not on making this about value judgments. So I, yeah, so to answer your question, initially it was confusion, and then slowly I, I, I think I came to a, a point of acceptance and understanding. Absolutely, and I think it, it depends on who was listening to the story. And um, I, there's a lot of very culturally specific uh, value that comes from understanding case and reaction to case. It's, um, I felt it in my body in a way that I'm sure is because of my relationship with Sikhi. Um, I want to backtrack a little bit um, to before all of this happened. Uh, Kevin G saying you actually were in a situation where you had to seek accommodations. Can you share a little bit about what happened? Yeah, for sure. Um, so prior to um, COVID really blowing up in, in North America, I had um, 
and this was probably early March, I'd approached my, um, my, the chief of my department about how I should care for COVID patients because of the expectation that things were likely going to escalate here in, um, in Ontario and that I couldn't be fitted for an N95 because of my beard. Um, my chief uh, kind of brought that question to hospital leadership as they weren't sure and um, hospital leadership discussed this and then made the decision that healthcare workers unable to be fitted for an N95 uh, couldn't practice in the front lines and that included the emergency department. So at that point I was uh, placed off work indefinitely. Um, um, so what kind of given that I, I had asked them what, what, what else was available if they had an alternative to um, an N95 and at that point they weren't aware of any alternatives that they had or that they could provide. Um, so what I did is I, I contacted a fellow um, sick emergency physician at a different hospital who I'd heard had um, a hooded papper. And through that, I was able to provide the product information and share that with my chief. And then ultimately within, um, within about one to two weeks time, the poppers were able to be arrived and then um, approved by uh, occupational um, health and safety. And then I was able to return back to work. That's amazing. Um, this uh, this narrative being out there now of uh, there are sick doctors who will remove their case to continue working. If that had been available, then do you imagine that those conversations uh, with your chief would have gone differently? Um, uh, thankfully, my um, we weren't at such a difficult position as per se in Montreal. We never had the uh, situation arise where we were dealing with such a a high caseload of patients. My colleagues were all very supportive and were able to cover all of my shifts. And I felt that I was, and because I had all this support, I knew that I was kind of making the right decision going through this path and um, arranging this paper. And thankfully I didn't run because I was able to um, kind of take, um, take direction and provide them uh, with um, the appropriate devices and such. They were able to get that moving and um, through the help with um, even the WSO was helping me through that, we were able to get that um, supply in and we didn't have to same, we didn't have to deal with um, unfortunately similar issues that Quebec deals with in terms of getting that supply in because of their bureaucratic, bureaucratic differences. Mm -hmm. um, so I, thankfully I didn't have to go through that. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, so yeah, Quebec is in a very unique situation. Um, they have a very different uh, relationship to symbols of faith. Uh, they did recently pass, uh, Bell 21 was legalized, which makes it illegal to wear overt symbols of faith in public roles. So that includes uh, judges, uh, includes teachers. Um, we've had, uh, there's a couple of amazing women that I want to make sure we mention. Um, Amrit Gaur, who is a part of the World Sick Organization, who has become the face of the legal challenge to Bill, and just generally challenge to Bill 21. And I also wanted to thank Sharanji Gaur, who has done a lot of the work, um, working on accommodations for frontline folks in the pandemic. Um, so given the situation in Bill 21, um, there is, um, what do you think this means for Quebec? that is really pushing back against the idea that you can have your, you can wear your religion on the outside and serve for this um, binary to be put forward that you have to choose between your service or your case, which I'm framing as an outward um, symbol of your religion. Um, if a good model minority chooses the service, 
um, that falls into, I started answering the question myself. Okay. That falls into the bill 21 narrative. So I'm going to, I'm going to open it back. That's how, that's how I would answer the question. Uh, let me make it a little bit broader and a little bit more fair. So given that Quebec is culturally in a place where they believe that serving Quebec publicly and wearing your religion on your body are not compatible. What does this mean? And we'll start with, um, let's go over Meet Singh. Yeah, thanks uh, for the question. So I think, I think it's a really tough situation in general. Um, and I think it really, like this whole situation really makes it tough for people that are in Quebec, uh, perhaps, and are practicing openly their faith. I, I, coming back to what I said earlier, I don't think the Saluja brothers had any intention uh, to actually cause any issues, especially regarding Bill C-21, but I think this has given a bit of ammunition to some of the governmental authorities that perhaps view things as you're sort of describing, to sort of say, hey, look, they did it, why can't you? So that issue definitely makes it very uncomfortable for people that are practicing openly. Um, yeah. That's all, all I'll say for now. Okay, okay. Uh, just leave saying. Oh, you're muted. There we go. There you go. Um, so in terms of uh, Bill 21, I do think that this can be used for proponents of Bill 21 to say, you know what, in a situation where the greater good is is important, that you know the uh, the outer outer symbols symbolism of your religion needs to be put aside, right? Um, I haven't been involved with any of the advocacy work with Bill 21, and I think you know your, you and WSO and Belpreet Singh have been involved more, and would be a better place to kind of say whether or not those proponents of Bill 21 would try to take advantage of the situation, right? Um, you know, yes, of course, in you know it, it, the way the story has been framed, right, that it was a situation where um, you know it was service or not, um, and it was an you know an emergency situation. It was a it was a situation where the greater good was at risk. Um, I think, you know, even that question of, you know, when a situation is uh, in that, you know, greater good versus not is a slippery slope to go down as well, because who gets to decide that, right? And in this, in the case that we, that's brought us all here, we really don't have anywhere close to the facts uh, or information to be able to, uh, you know, properly adjudicate, was this a situation that, um, you know, required the framing of the story as it was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and Kevin Jing saying. Um, I agree. I mean, I, I can definitely um, see how some people might see this as providing ammunition for Bill 21. I like to try to see the opportunity in every uh, moment, and I can also see this as an opportunity to further stimulate the debate for Bill 21 and how it violates the human rights and religious freedoms that we as Canadians take pride in. And I think it's only going to further discussion that you know people are. Um, that, that healthcare workers specifically and those that are kind of in the front lines dealing with COVID, whether that's, you know, police, uh, people in the hospitals, firefighters, et cetera, are, are risking their lives for the benefits of others. And um, their religion is a big part of what, what gives them those values to practice that way. So if anything, I, I hope that this is going to further educate to the Quebec people how important uh, people's religious freedoms are and what drives them and how they use that to uh, be better members of society. And ideally, my, my hope is that this will lead to the end of Bill 21. Right. Um, okay. And I think I'm going to open it up to, I have not looked at the Q&As yet. I'm going to bring in some of the questions that 
our folks who are joining us have. And the first one is real tough. Okay, are you ready? Dr. Jasdeep Singh, where did you get your amazing printed bug? Um, so we ask the real questions here on Ask Canadian Six. Absolutely, I think that's a very important question. Yeah. Um, we've got some brothers uh, down in California and in the States that have opened a company called Turban Flow. And everyone can go on their website, Turban Flow, I think it's turbanflow.com, and check out uh, their selection. All right, thank you for the shout out. Um, okay, we have some practical questions. I'm just gonna go through these. And I know um, Sharanji Kaur is on with us as well, and she has been running the Q&A. If you wanna unmute Sharanji Kaur, and is there a question on here that you uh, would like to ask while I just go through them? Sorry, I'm here. I think uh, there's a good question around what solutions are possible for medical students currently in clerkship for whom, for whom PAPRs are maybe too expensive to invest in? Um, what has been done, uh, what, what has been used in the past and what could be done uh, moving forward? Okay, and uh, whichever panelists would like to take that. Can you folks see the questions on your screens? We can see uh, Okay, okay. Does Singh, do you want to start? So what solutions are possible for medical students currently? Honestly, in my, in my medical school and residency career, I was always provided with a PAPR should the needs are, when, the, when the need arise, right? Oh, sorry. Um, went to school at Queens. I was, I was always, um, I had access to a PAPR there. At UBC had an access, uh, access to a PAPR. I'm starting my inpatient service week on Monday. Uh, here at the, in Victoria, and I've already been, you know, I've already been assured that should the need arise, there is a PAPR available for me. So I actually haven't ran into that type of situation. It's hard to, for me to comment on. Okay. There's also a related question then. Um, it's someone who is entering residency in July, and are there any PP, PPE tips for a female who wears a thought? I, I assume the same would go for a male. So is there anything around the mask band, around a thought, um, and surgical caps? In terms of, you know, really the requirement is for an N95, again, to create a perfect seal, right? And so if you're entering, entering uh, residency, my guess is you've already been uh, doing a, you've already had a fit test, right? And if you pass the fit test, then an N95 should be totally fine. I don't think that the star should uh, play a role in that. I can comment on that as well. So I know with me, my ears uh, are usually in, even when I'm practicing. Uh, so we have this little... Um, 3D printed de device that they gave us essentially. And nurses use this device because when they actually put masks, like not the N95s, but the normal face masks, it actually uh, creates a lot of friction behind the ear and it can lead to skin breakdown. So there's these 3D printed uh, devices uh, that are kind of widely available right now where you can just uh, loop the mask uh, and actually wear it, wear this thought on and with your ears tucked in. So that's also how I've been getting around that. Yeah, I think for the non N95s, um, for like the regular surgical masks, they're, um, they're, I've seen the ones you're talking about, the 3D printed, and I have a friend here who wears a gestad, and she had someone, uh, and if this is the Gurkiyakura that I think it is, uh, I can get in touch with you, and um, so I can show you what they look like, and she just had someone print, 3D print them out for her, and they save your ears. Six with gestads are not strangers to ear pain. Yeah, another alternative to that, which is um, relatively straightforward if you don't have that 3D printed um, device, is you can also just take paper clips and then put that um, around the uh, part that goes over the ears, and that'll also serve the same purpose for if you need to MacGyver something on short notice. Okay, 
Perfect. Okay, so we have a question. What are your thoughts on PPE for dentists, optometry, and physiotherapists? Ramnitsing maybe? Because I feel, do you work with, uh, on a team with other healthcare professionals as well? Uh, yeah, sorry, can you repeat the question again? Yeah, so what are your thoughts on PPE for optometrists, physiotherapists, and dentists? Yeah, I can't really comment too much. I, we work with the multidisciplinary team, but it's primarily um, physicians, NPs, allied health staff. And right now where I work, we have a mandatory masking policy. So you have to wear a mask throughout your entire shift okay. um, from beginning to end. I can't really comment on dentistry. I can't comment on the other uh, uh, profession that they, they, they talked about, but I would assume that it's probably pretty similar and there's regulatory bodies that kind of manage that. Okay, and I think dentists are procuring um, some of that PPE right now in Ontario. Other folks? I think um, definitely, especially for um, optometrists, because what we, what we saw in, um, in, in China was that many of the younger healthcare workers that uh, really suffered from a lot of morbidity and mortality uh, from COVID were ophthalmologists and optometrists. Um, because they have such close contact on their devices where they're face-to-face -face with a patient, having appropriate PPE is very important. They're, they're not doing aerosolized generating procedures, so kind of wearing those droplet contact um, devices like we spoke about earlier, a mask, a face shield, gloves, and a gown would be incredibly important. Uh, for dentists, because they're doing a lot of work orally with the patient um, who may potentially cough and such on them, uh, oftentimes they are going to require airborne precautions, an N95 or a PAPR. Um, so I think it's, again, they're in a very high risk uh, scenario where they ideally are going to be practicing with those once dental clinics open up more as now we're shifting from more openings in many provinces. Um. And we, I think, um, just deep saying, I think you have like a, a fan base on here right now. One of the highest ranked questions right now, are you coming back to Ontario or have we lost you to the West side? Again, ask Canadian six, asking the real questions. The real important questions here. Um, I never say never. <laughs> well, I mean, I think uh, Ontario is also not doing so great pandemic wise right now, so. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, enjoy I'm really enjoying our time out here in the West Coast, and it's been a fantastic uh, transition here. Uh, but obviously, got lots of connections and you know, family and loved ones in Ontario, and uh, always look forward to coming back to Toronto. And I always tell everybody I'm a Toronto boy at heart, so yeah. still, wherever I am, I still represent TDOT. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, Thijnokar is asking, how do you, and well, all three of you, please answer this. How do you feel about working during this pandemic? do you want to be? I think that's something I've wondered as well about healthcare workers. Um, did you know that, I mean, I'm assuming healthcare folks have these conversations about pandemics more often than other people do. Did you know this, is an, uh, this was what your life could look like? Um, do you want to be doing this work? Yeah, how do you feel about working during this time? We'll start with, yeah, Remini Singh. I know initially when this first broke out, I think the initial reaction I had, it wasn't anything heroic at all. And it was more like, oh my God, like, like get me out of here. But I think as I had time to process this, I think now with, for example, where I work, we work at a facility, we have about 150 clients. You develop strong bonds with those clients. And a big part of me would feel like I was abandoning them if, you know, we were to, we were to get COVID and 
we just decided to just leave, which essentially we could do in a way. So I think for me, there's a strong call um, to serve on the front line um, with uh, serve these clients. And I think perhaps that comes even before the sick key call for me being, you know, being in a healthcare profession. And then obviously there's that layer, that SEVA layer, uh, where we try our best to serve selflessly. So for me, I think I'd feel that, uh, like I was imagining my clients if I just jumped off the front line. Okay. Yeah, Kevin G. Singh, how are you feeling about working during this time? Um, I, I would say very similar to what Ramneet described. Um, I think, you know, initially there was obviously a certain level of fear because of the uncertainty, um, not knowing what things could be like. You, you know, we hear in the news about what was happening in Italy, what was happening in New York. We had sessions where we talked to, um, where our group talked to emergency physicians and um, internists and ICU physicians in New York and got their experience on what things were like given the lack of PPE that they were experiencing and the number of uh, patients that had COVID requiring acute procedures. It definitely instilled some fear, but at the at the same time that that was um, much minor, I'd say, compared to um, realizing how this kind of reinforced the calling to uh, medicine and um, the uh, the importance of providing that seva and, um, and and doing the best for your community and for your patients. And it really just helped to reinforce that. Uh, so this time of working in, in the hospital and in the community has been really fun, actually, because we've been forced to do a lot of innovation in community setting. You know, we've been working on, you know, really uh, evolving our telehealth uh, capabilities to make sure that we are able to reach our patients uh, and still keep them safe at home, uh, which has been pretty pivotal for a lot of patients' health. Uh, in the hospital, it's been super impressive to see the teamwork that's been going on a lot, going on amongst physicians, amongst uh, physician colleagues, allied healthcare workers, the administrative staff, everyone's really stepped up in, especially in our hospital. You know, there's a, there's a town hall every couple of days where the administrators, the chief medical staff, talk to nurses, physicians, everyone together and answer everyone's questions, keep people abreast of the latest uh, knowledge, the latest guidelines that are coming out. Uh, it's, been, it's been a great experience in that way, right? Great. I've got um, one of our most popular questions right now, and it's kind of big. I think we touched on it a little bit already, but I'm just gonna ask it verbatim and ask for you to briefly uh, share your thoughts. So how do we change the hero narrative of the Saluja brothers? Uh, so that, so the, uh, to avoid confusion, we have a Dr. Saluja on the call, uh, different Dr. Saluja, but uh, these are, we're talking about the brothers that were, had made the news and kind of the reason that we ended up having this conversation. Um, so how do we change the hero narrative of those brothers? Um, when that singer in Australia took off his dasad to bandage the wounded citizen, that was rightfully positioned as a heroic act. But the more I understand this discussion, the more we are seem to agree that this is a non-malicious personal choice. So how do we, or do we at all, as a community, battle the hero rhetoric that has come out when there are a number of reasons to believe that this really was just a personal choice and could have been avoided. So we don't want to speculate. We don't have uh, the doctors here. We don't want to speculate on their intentions or be critical of them. But how do we, um, do we want to challenge the hero narrative that has come forward from the actions of these doctors? Um, how would we challenge it? 
if this was a personal choice and it could have been avoided? Big question. Anything? Yeah, so I think uh, that last line of, of the question is really interest, is interesting to me. So this really was just a personal choice, could have been avoided. I think that main piece right there is kind of the, the main work that needs to happen is the fact that the community needs to understand that this, that it's not a personal choice for practicing six. Like it's not a choice that we have where, where you know, we can, you know, decide to shave our beards or work on the front line. I think there's been a lot of confusion in the general public about what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do in, in, in different circumstances. So that needs to be clarified, I think. And, and I think there needs to be, I would love to see statements come out from kind of the highest levels of authority in our, in our, in our community about what practicing six, what the norm is for practicing six and what, um, what entails personal choice because those issues are being confused and it's, it's very gray, the area right now. And the general public has no idea, right? So you can't really expect them to answer that and, and no, so it needs to come from us. I think we need to make it more clear so people really understand that, hey, this wasn't like, this wasn't about, uh, this isn't about the whole community having this choice. It was a decision that made by two brothers and it was their personal decision. And most six that are working on the front line don't have to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important that um, especially through the work that the WSO has done that we know, and again, world, I'm going to say one time, worldsick.org forward slash COVID-19 to look at our policy and to get information on where you can get help with uh, PPE accommodations. This is not a choice that you have to make. So if you are being made to feel that way, um, please reach out and see what the team can do to help. Does anyone else want to comment on that question? I would agree in that um, in terms of, you know, how do we view the narrative? I, I think I think there needs to be more focus on that this narrative was a failure of the the hospital system and it was a failure from the province that this wasn't addressed earlier and addressed with more acuity um, in that they were forced to make this, in my opinion, uh, were forced to make this uh, decision, um, which is obviously, I, I agree, is a very personal one. Um, and a very difficult one to make. And uh, that's why personally, I, I do think it was, uh, it was heroic from my perspective and the way that I see things. And I'll, um, and I, I truly empathize with the decision that they had to make. So I have a, I still have a tough time saying that it was a failure on the part of the system or a failure on the part of the hospital when there's published documentation about guidelines that have come out, you know, Public Health Quebec came up with guidelines back in 2013. The Quebec Association of Emergency Physicians came up with guidelines that were clearly, you know, demonstrating that the use of copper is important, that we do need to be uh, reasonably prepared for an epidemic or a, you know, a viral or a pandemic coming our way. We, obviously, nobody could have predicted when and where that was going to happen, but uh, prep, there, you know, it can't be said enough that, you know, in the emergency, it's four in, in the emergency uh, world, that these, this type of preparation needs to happen. So, 
I, I have a tough time saying that, you know, this was due to a failure on the health uh, authorities apart. And I don't, I don't even know if we need to say it's a failure on anybody's part. It can just be, this was a decision that was made. Um, and I think all of us can absolutely respect their choice, um, you know, of, of, you know, shaving your beard. It, for, for us, it's the issue, I think, is from framing it as a sick issue, right? Framing it as uh, a sick that's sacrificing, you know, for, for a greater humanity and service. Um, I just think that there's not enough information to support that position. That's all there is. Right? Yeah. And I think um, that the, 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 there's two different things that have happened. The, the action and then the video framing it. And it's, it's very complicated. Um, there is room in the spectrum of six um, for all of these things, but then what do you do for Sarbat Tapala and what do you put out there? Um, I think one of the things in terms of um, if we do want to challenge a hero narrative, when I see videos that some folks find uh, inspirational, I take a step back. Uh, huge, I'm a huge fan of sentimental YouTube videos and you see like, you know, the dog seeing the military person when they come home from war and you get all like, oh, that's such a beautiful reunion. Why do we find beauty in systems of violence? And why do we, um, there's the migrant worker who comes back after two years, three years, his kids all grown up and he surprises them in a restaurant and they, they don't even recognize their own dad. And we see this video and we love this video and this reunion. Um, we really need to ask ourselves, why are people going away to war? Why do people not have to work as migrant workers and why can't they raise their own children? Why are people being put in situations where they need to choose between one or the other? Um, and if, uh, instead of finding inspiration in those videos, challenging why we live in violent systems where the natija of those violent systems, we're then moved to tears by. Um, okay, so uh, we have a question from um, someone who says, I'm in law enforcement and we are looking to find alternatives to N95 masks for our regular gas masks that are used by our organizations. We are working on getting PAPRs. Does PAPR fit okay with a distad? How quickly can a PAPR be worn? Since I work frontline and may have to respond to a situation within seconds. Um, so maybe for the folks that have worn papers, um, does it, so does it, so this is someone who is in law enforcement frontline, does papper fit with a dasad or turban? How quickly can it be put on? I'm on the front line and may have to respond in seconds. Kevin G. Singh, did you say you've used it? Yep, I've, I've used a papper. So um, a papper can um, fit with a dasad. Um, it, uh, it takes a little longer than it will for putting on a mask, definitely. Um, so there is a delay relative to if you were to put on an N95. Um, oftentimes, uh, it can take a couple minutes. So um, being prepared in advance is the best thing that you can do. But for situations where, you're, where you don't have that time, that can make things very difficult. And oftentimes is when I rely on colleagues to, um, to start the initial um, care and whether that would be for in law enforcement, whether their partner would be able to start and give them a couple moments to place their paper on would be um, would be the alternative. Um, but yes, there is a there is a little delay. Um, practical question: Do you wear like a smaller thistad when you're practicing, or he just? We should we get we should have gotten you all to model your <laughs> PPE. No, you can you can wear like you can wear a fully uh, like a full thistad with. Um, 
with the papper and there's no issues with it that I, that I found personally. Okay, perfect. Does anyone else want to add to that? Uh, the, few, the few times I've had to use a papper, I, I was wearing a smaller KSP at the time. And usually when I do inpatient service, I kind of put a KSP just for the ears, for the, just for the ease of putting on and taking off PB. Okay. Um, Sharjikor, is there a question on here that you want to? Okay, so we'll go with the top one. They're getting voted. The yep, okay. So as a physician myself, I'm curious how you have faced taking care of patients who either have COVID or are suspected to have COVID and you do not have a PAPR or CAPR uh, at your disposal, emphasis on an outpatient setting. So how have you faced taking care of patients who have COVID or suspected of having COVID uh, if you do not have a PAPR or CAPR in an outpatient setting? So, um, I mean, I, I probably work in the outpatient setting more than Kevin G does, um, but um, we've been fortunate because in our community, we have like a, a COVID line that patients can call. And if, they're, if they answer some questions, uh, they then get sent to a COVID uh, sort of a, a health unit where they have a COVID assessment unit. And, the physicians there are all uh, provided with the appropriate PPE. In our clinic, we've just been doing a lot of our work is through telehealth um, and really limiting the um, patients that are coming to our office. And that really is a guidance that's come from our provincial college, uh, of, uh, college of physicians of BC to limit all in-person encounters uh, other than emergency ones or urgent ones. And I know um, in Ontario, um, and the mandate from the federal government, as well as the policy document that the WSO has put forward, we've outlined that you only require an N95 or an alternative a PAPR in aerosol generating medical procedures. So um, even uh, I know folks that are working on COVID floors who for the most part are doing um, in non-AGMPs, gloves, gown, face, surgical mask, and uh, don't necessarily have to do that. Okay, um, what else we got here? Um, there were, um, okay, there, this is a fun one. So I'm gonna, all the fun ones seem to be coming for Desleep uh, uh, Singh, but I'm gonna put this out to everyone. And I think this might be uh, not a real question, but I'm curious. So when doing Keetan or Simran, should Sangatis be wearing masks and shields? How do we still eat Prashad? I'm combining this with another question that was like, do we need to wear gloves and a mask when we go for groceries? We are not gonna make it through this pandemic without culturally sensitive conversations around PPE. We are people that are meant to be together. We are the babe in the park and we are the auntie in the back of the Gurdwara. We are in the Lunger Hall. What does PPE and I'm gonna bridge all these together. Uh, where do six need to uh, use PPE in their daily life? Groceries, sangat, just all of it. Ramneet Singh, what do you think? Yeah, I know here in Alberta, we're still um, slowly easing up the restrictions. So I think last I checked, we still have a 15 person capacity. And I don't think they've opened up Gurdwari again fully yet, if I recall correctly. Um, but I think um, the, the question's a bit amusing. I, I'm just, I just envisioned having a, a sangat program with everybody wearing masks at the same time. And, um, I don't know if that's the best strategy here. I do think something basic like social distancing can go a long way. 
And then obviously, if you're sick or you're having any symptoms, you probably should avoid um, public settings and especially uh, places of worship. So those are two things that come to mind right away, social distancing and not going to the Gurdwara if you're feeling uh, like you have symptoms. All right. Other folks? Anything about sick lifestyle and PPE? Well, I do know there's a lot of virtual Sangat that's going on these days, um, you know, on YouTube. You know, I know my parents, like my dad's logged on right now. They're, they attend like a Sangat session almost every day around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And uh, so that's been working out well for people. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of industries that have done well during this pandemic and maybe the Vajja industry will do well as everyone just invests and buys their own Vajja and starts thinking in their own rooms at home. All right, perfect. Kevin, do you think anything to add? Um, no, I agree with um, everything that was said. Social distancing is going to be, it's only going to continue to be important until uh, we can find a successful vaccination. Um, the one thing I'd highlight is I think a lot of people do see out in the community, people wearing masks, gloves and such. I think something that it's really important to um, those in healthcare and even outside of healthcare is sometimes when you're wearing those PPE, those can be additional vectors of transmission of infection. Because if you're repeatedly touching everything with gloves and then you touch someone else, that's not gonna really um, protect others. It only really protects yourself and then you're a bigger vector of transmission. Uh, people often touch their face when they're wearing a mask and then it often leads to further spread. So if you are gonna use those devices, uh, make sure you're using them appropriately and not um, being a bigger vector of transmission. All right, perfect. Um, we had a question, where can one go to get support if six want to work on the front line in the medical field or another? Is, this the, is it different from the states? Um, so I'm just going to answer that one so that if uh, you are looking in Canada for support, worldsake.org forward slash COVID-19 or reach out to us on any of our social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and someone will get back to you. For the United States, for legal supports, you can go to the Sick Coalition or the North American Sick Medical and Dental Association. Um, are there other organizations that uh, you folks can think of that I might have missed? I think I hit the main ones. Okay. Um, what else we got on here? Um, there is a really long question that I'm just going to read out. Um, and I hope that you all can understand what this question is saying. So it says, hi, I'm Than, a recent product industrial design graduate, and I just completed my capstone project on providing inclusive head protection for Turban 6. Through my research, I discovered that before workplace PPE is established, a set of hazard controls needs to be established. Usually, elimination, getting rid of the hazardous substance, engineering controls, designing workplaces to limit exposure, administrative controls, altering how work is done. And finally, with all of these, hazard is still not eliminated or controlled. Then finally, personal protective equipment. My discovery was that for sixth and minorities who don't fall under the 50th percentile users for PPE design, another hazard control existed, which was adapting situated right before PPE control. Um, for me, it's a dilemma because this control makes a user question their faith and whether to comply with PPE or to relocate to another position 
do you think this is accurate? So I think what they're saying is before, when you're going through all of those levels, before you get to the point of PPE, you're looking at um, adapting in other ways. Um, so does this make six, uh, it makes someone question their faith and whether, and then that creates the choice of do you comply with PPE or relocate to another position? Do you think this is accurate? Does that question make sense? Okay, so this person is a product industrial design graduate. At the end of their education, they did a capstone project looking at wearing a distar in a, in a workplace with hazards. There are a whole bunch of levels of things you have to go through. And before you get to personal protective equipment, you look at altering how the work is done, standards, equipment handling. I think Ramnit Singh, that's kind of what you mentioned would fall into that, being assigned, redeployed to something else. And that kind of setup causes a dilemma because it may it question it makes someone question whether they comply with the PPE or they relocate to another position. Which again, Ramit saying you, it sounded like you have that plan already that you would uh, you've spoken to your supervisor and you would do something else. Or uh, I think Kevin Jeet, I heard you mention that you haven't you might have another team member going first. Uh, do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I'll do my best to uh, dissect the question and answer your question here. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it is accurate to a certain level. So when I think about this whole problem about PPE in the healthcare industry, for me, I think as technology advances, the end goal essentially one day we might have a situation where, where robots are the frontline, <laughs> front um, you know, uh, caregivers essentially and taking care of patients and whatnot. But until we kind of get to that level, and if we get to that level, we're always going to have to have an intermediary, and that's either going to be a healthcare worker, a healthcare aide, a doctor, physician, nurse, somebody. And I can't really think of any other ways to bypass some of the higher levels that he was talking about. So eventually, you have to have contact with the patient um, to do your physical exam, um, to take vitals, to give medications, and whatnot. So I don't know what how we bypass that um i mean virtual medicine does a great job of bypassing some of those features but you still have to have physical contact with that patient eventually unless we have robotics doing it for us one day okay um i think we have like four questions left and i'm going to speed round through them so i'm just going to point to one person and let's do the answer um, actually, Shanjikor, I'm going to put you, um, maybe just if you want to jump on video or just on audio, the question is, does WSO collaborate with other minority groups to discuss inclusive PPE solutions in the workplace? Because there are parallels with hijab and burqa wearing uh, healthcare workers. Um, sure. We actually uh, collaborate with our interfaith partners quite a bit on a number of accommodation issues, but uh, right now in the COVID context, when we have actually reached out, no one has face similar concerns um, that we have in light of N95 fit with, uh, with the bearded sick professionals. So uh, we are currently in that space and we've asked others to reach out to us if they encounter accommodation issues and of our um, sister organizations, no one's actually come forward yet, uh, but we will continue to ask and engage. Okay, so I've got two questions that are kind of similar. Um, 
are we closer? Is this getting better? Are we closer to fat flattening the curve? Not fattening the curve, flattening the curve. And how long will it take for a vaccine? Uh, let's go with just Steve saying. What do you? What does the future hold? Look into your crystal ball. No, use facts and evidence-based. Sorry, can you just repeat the question again? Yeah. So what does the future look like? Is this getting better? Are we getting closer to flattening the curve? And how long will it take for a vaccine? So generally, what's the outlook here? The outlook, um, I mean, I can speak to what it looks like in BC. And, and, and on Vancouver Island, last, you know, last couple of weeks, we only actually had a couple of days where we had any new cases whatsoever, right? Uh, in Victoria alone, we we're you know, doing over 120, 130 tests daily uh, at, the, at the sites. Um, so that's a pretty, that's a pretty good, uh, it's a remarkable, I think, uh, outlook for our, for our area. I don't know what, how, things, how things are going on in Ontario and Quebec and uh, other places. I know uh, our province is starting to ma make a plan to start reopening uh, the economy in, in slow stages as long as certain uh, safety criteria can be met. I do think this is going to change the way we do things for a long time. I think social distancing is going to be part of part and partial of how we live life for a while, at least uh, as far as I can see. Um, but I think there's an opportunity here um, to uh, support a lot of innovation and a lot of different ways of doing things, right? Um, I know people that have really enjoyed this time because uh, there's some people that actually like to keep to themselves and have had to in, you know, deal with people like myself and other friends getting on their cases. And now we all have to live like them, so that's okay. Um, so I, I do think this is going to change things for a very long time. Okay. I also want to um, point our participants to the Q&A section. If you open up your Q&A, you will see the answered ones, um, questions, and there are some we have been answering in uh, writing. And so please make sure you look at those as well. So there was a really great question about um, the collecting and publishing and of data around COVID-19 and is WSO advocating for this and we are advocating for the collection of race-based data um, from the preliminary stuff we've seen on race-based data that's been coming out of the United States and from our understanding of what's happening here the systems of violence and inequity that existed are being exacerbated under the pressure of this situation um, so folks are responding and uh, very differently I can tell you in Toronto every uh, shelter has an outbreak in Toronto right now um, and our nursing homes have been hit harder. Um, so there are definitely the existing inequities, including race and class and all of those things are, are, are really showing up um, in this situation. Okay, um, so we have, okay, the last two I'm gonna put together as well. So the one was, uh, have you gone through challenges? Um, in your career as a sick, that's not necessarily related to PPE. And then the last question, and this was going to be my last question anyways. Um, so can you talk about how your faith has helped you in your profession and provide inspiration to those that may feel like their sikhi gets in the way of their practice? So again, uh, just you and your relationship with your sikhi, uh, have you gone through challenges and how my, the way I had framed it was, how does your Sikhi inform your practice? So there, might, there are folks on here, it sounds like, who are in professions that are parallel to yours or they're on the way to doing what you folks do. Um, so let's start with Kevin Jeet Singh. Um, sure, I, I, I'll kind of address the question about have you ever 
uh, gone through difficult challenges in your career because of um, having a turban and or a beard. Um, I think there's definitely, you know, situations where that's been, that's happened, whether that's been directly because of uh, patient comments, because, you know, saying things that are just blatantly racist, um, or refusing to see a uh, physician with, um, uh, that has a turban in her beard. Um, you know, there's definitely been uh, feelings of, uh, of racism amongst even other healthcare providers and other people in the hospital, but that I would say is relatively infrequently. And um, I would say, if anything, you know, always outlines that um, it's always going to give me the opportunity to practice forgiveness uh, with those people. Um, in regards to how my faith has helped in my profession to inspire those um, and how Sikhi informs my, uh, my kind of practice, um, I would say it informs it through the principles of equality and seva. And um, through that, it helps me kind of better my community and maintain humility and compassion. Um, and also just helps me minimize kind of pride and ego. And I think uh, this pandemic, if, only, if anything, just continues to provide opportunities to, pra uh, to practice that aspect of my faith. Beautiful. Ramin Singh, how about you? How does your Sikhi inform your practice? Yeah, I, I would um, say exactly what Dr. Munger said already. Uh, I share a lot of those views already. I think for me, um, Sikhi has been really helpful when it comes to some of the core, higher, core, deeper issues that I faced in my career working the front line. So for me, death was always something that wasn't that easy to deal with, especially when it comes to patients dying. And depending on where I worked in the past, sometimes you'd have, you would have patients die almost on a daily or weekly basis, and you would have to provide care for them. So for me, Sikhi has helped ground me from that perspective. And I, I like to think prevent a bit of care, uh, burnout, essentially. In healthcare fields, you see high levels of burnout, especially for uh, frontline staff members, including physicians, nurses, emergency responders. Uh, so for me, it's helped ground me quite a bit. And I think it's helped prevent a lot of that burnout that I might have experienced early on. All right. Final thoughts, Jaseep Singh. Uh, so in terms of my experience, uh, you know, with being in Sikhi Sroop and medicine, I think it's been a great experience. Um, I have had similar, you know, experiences like Kevin G has had um, through training at several times, but thankfully it's actually been very, very uh, minor experiences and majority I would say the vast majority of my journey in, in medicine and healthcare has been uh, very positive if anything uh, you leave a room and people at least remember what you look like um, and that keeps you memorable in their books um, and in terms of Sikhi informing my my profession I, it's an interesting question it's a tough question for me because I the first question is does Sikhi inform anything in life right in terms of are, is it, you know, we can talk about it and the other, the other is talking about it and then is actually applying it, right? Um, so I do hope that it informs my practice um, in the parts of that in terms of like Seva, Sangat Simran, uh, in terms of, you know, the common sort of, you know, principles that we know of Nam Japana, Kit Karani, Van Shakana, right? And if we can, it's really applying that in almost all facets of our life, not just our profession. And I guess in, when it comes to Kit Karani, it's about doing your job as to the best of your knowledge and uh, treating all the patients equally and uh, going above and beyond. Perfect. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you, Jaseep Singh, for seeming, it seems like you invited a lot of your base. There was a lot of great questions. We have another shout out to your great Thistad and huge shout outs to all of your great beards. 
and all of the work that they do. Um, again, if you are looking for policy or guidance around personal protective equipment and being a bearded professional, worldsick.org forward, forward slash COVID-19 or reach out to us on any of our social media handles at worldsick.org on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, someone will get back to you. Um, all of the hard work that the World Sick Organization does, um, we do it with a very small budget. So if there's anything that you see that you feel is useful, or if you feel like this organization is useful to Canadian Six, please consider donating through our website. And, um, and again, this was quite an honor because WSO has gender balance panels. And so thank you all for coming and for being a part of this very specific question that something that has dispropor disproportionately affected um, our sayings. Thank you for, I know it's, it's becoming, um, am I still on? Oh, sorry guys. Um, I'm getting a thing that says that the meeting is over. That's my, that's my cue to go. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, we will, I, I was gonna say, I know it's becoming cliched to say thank you to healthcare workers. Uh, but honestly, I think from the bottom of everyone's heart who's watching and who has uh, received your love and your care, thank you. And have a good evening to wherever you're tuning in from. Thank you for listening to Ask Canadian Six. Hope you enjoyed this webinar. As always, thank you to all of the six that are doing the frontline work during this pandemic. The need to serve and the ideology of Sikhi that brings us to these positions is not at odds with our identity. And it was so great to have a chance to interview and talk to and ask questions to sick healthcare workers on the front lines who weren't put in a position where they had to compromise. Bye, Gujika Khalsa. Bye, Gujika Khalsa.